Welcome to On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. For those of you who are wondering why I'm doing a podcast, let me give you a short answer. Up until recently, I was a full-time professor. If you're a regular listener, you probably know that I've worked at such diverse institutions as Wheaton College, the Kyle Leuven, the University of St. Andrews, and Union Theological Seminary in New York City. When I started doing this podcast last year, I was expecting it to be nothing more than just something like a sideline. But the response has been so overwhelmingly positive that I decided to leave the academy and focus on podcasting full-time. Those of you who've heard my story probably also realize that moving to podcasting means that I can finally say what I really think. But it also fills a dream that I had for a long time, finding a way to share what I've learned with as many people as possible. In my seminars, I usually had 15 to 20 students. There was a cap on the enrollment to keep it to a seminar size. But I'd often think, if only more people could learn about these figures and ideas that are so life-giving and helpful. From what I can tell, the podcast has been fulfilling that role. And you've responded very positively. It's been so encouraging to see our downloads grow each day and each week, to hear feedback from you, some of whom are even former students from decades ago. Often I hear about the unique challenges listeners have faced in the evangelical world. I know about these challenges firsthand. Alas, even in 2023, figures like Bill Gothard continue to have power and sway, and new threats like the theologically challenged folks at the Daily Wire have sprung up spreading their own brand of hate infused with Christianity. I'm constantly aware that how you read the Bible, that's hermeneutics, can lead to love and kindness, but at last, it can just as easily lead to hate and meanness. My hope in this podcast is that your understanding of the Christian heritage will be one that leads to love and kindness. It's precisely for this reason that I provide criticism of figures like Matt Walsh or Bill Gothard to show that they've turned Christianity into something not very palatable, dark, scary, and I think deeply unchristian. The title of our podcast, Unbecoming, comes from Nietzsche's life motto, Become Who You Are. As beings who constantly change, we're always developing. And as beings who are fundamentally social and relational, those who are around us physically and digitally have a profound effect on how we change. The danger of people like Bill Gothard and Matt Walsh is that they take the most bigoted aspects of conservative Christianity and supercharge them. Rather than making people less dogmatic and more open to inquiry, they close off the world of their followers and make them more dogmatic and sheltered. If you buy into the rhetoric that takes place on their programs, you start developing. You become static, frozen in a world where darkness is constantly closing in and threats lurk just around the next corner. So I'd like to invite you to take a different path. The only thing that can truly fight radical hate is radical love. I was convinced of this long ago, but my experiences both in academia and more generally have made it clear to me that the fundamental choice really does come down to love and hate. Jesus invites us to love our enemies, which is truly subversive of the order of hatred. What's happening right now is incredibly dangerous. Almost every day a new story emerges about conservative Christianity tending more towards theocracy and further from the true teachings of Christ. The best and most Christian response is to be willing to forgive and to offer a path for redemption. 
But until we get to such a point, we need to put up a fight, but not with hatred. We need to argue against hate and for love. You're already involved in the podcast since you're listening, but perhaps you'd like to be more involved. I'm looking to build a community with this podcast, so I really do want to hear from you. It might just be a short note to let me know that you're listening, or could be a lengthy critique of a recent episode or a past episode, or anything in between. I've now received many letters from you, and I'm thrilled at the response to the podcast. At the same time, the kind of world-building that we're trying to do doesn't always come cheap. You may have noticed that our podcast is meticulously recorded and edited. Not only is recording equipment and editing software pricey, but this is now my full-time job. I no longer have the stable income of a university professor. So if you can, would you consider helping us build this community? If you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to it. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. And now for the topic at hand, the prayers and tears of Friedrich Nietzsche. Some of you know that this is a reference to John D. Caputo's book, The Prayers and Tears of Jacques Derrida. In that text, Caputo shows us that Derrida is a deeply religious person. In this episode, and the ones to follow, I'll be making that case for Nietzsche. To be sure, no one is going to mistake Nietzsche for being a Christian in the usual sense. But if you listen to this podcast, you probably know that I define Christianity a lot more broadly than I did when I was growing up in the evangelical world. And I'm continuing to ask, what does it really mean to be a Christian? Again, growing up evangelical, the boundaries of Christianity were pretty narrowly circumscribed, along with the assurance that the Roman Catholics and those in the liberal mainline denominations were clearly going to hell. Of course, now I have serious problems with the very notion of hell, and have questions whether Jesus was teaching about an actual literal hell, since the word he uses is just the word for the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. But I'm not trying to sanctify Nietzsche, or to argue that he's actually Christian. However, when I presented some of my work on Nietzsche to a group of evangelicals, one of them, someone who is truly an evangelical but also open-minded, responded, So Nietzsche is like a distant relative. I think that sums up the situation pretty well. All right, let me begin with two quotes, one very early and one very late. I have firmly resolved within me to dedicate myself forever to his service. May the dear Lord give me strength and power to carry out my intention. Yes, dear Lord, let thy face shine upon us forever. Amen. And then the later one. When I have looked into my Zarathustra, I walk up and down in my room, unable to master an unbearable fit of sobbing. From Nietzsche's first work to his last, one finds the intonation of prayer and the stain of tears. The child who weeps over the deaths of father and brother becomes the man who sobs, peering into the abyss of the tragic or encountering a horse being abused. The child who instinctively knew how to pray becomes the adult who struggles to find a new way to pray, one that follows different instincts. The transition from one sort of prayer to another is neither easy nor simply instinctual for Nietzsche. 
Both Augustine's Confessions and Nietzsche's Ecce Homo can justly be called books of tears, as Derrida claims. Yet to what degree is Ecce Homo truly a Dionysian counter-confession? Does Nietzsche reach the Dionysian? Or does he merely tearfully long for it? One might be tempted to characterize Nietzsche's confessions in Ecce Homo as the inverse of Augustine's, not the tortured move to faith, but the tortured move away from faith. But my argument is a little different, that Nietzsche moves, and not all that successfully, from one faith to another. Ecce Homo thus is a confession, in both senses of that term, of things done and left undone, and a statement of belief that is characterized by both a measure of belief and an aspiration to further belief. One might say that Nietzsche's mature faith still seems all too Christian, rather than purely Dionysian, so that Ecce Homo bears a surprising connection to Aus meinem Leben, that was where the first quote came from. In opposition to those who interpret the adult Nietzsche as someone who has simply abandoned his childhood faith, I argue that his childhood faith proves decisive for his later philosophy. What I hope to show is not merely the deeply religious quality of Nietzsche's thought, but also the role that prayer plays in shaping that thought. There are two aspects to the following analysis. First, I'll argue that Nietzsche remains a person of faith and prayer, though he attempts to shift the logic and content of that faith and prayer. It should be clear that I'm using the terms faith and prayer in a very broad sense. Nietzsche's Dionysian faith, as he calls it, is not a faith in the sense of belief in God. Yet, even though the mature Nietzsche no longer professes a belief in God, he professes something like a faith in life. Further, whereas Nietzsche's early prayers are addressed to someone, it is not clear to whom his later prayers are addressed. Second, I will argue that Nietzsche retains not only the basic logic that emerges in his early prayers, but much of its content. So that shift is at best only partially successful. To see how Nietzsche arrives at Ecke Homo, we need to follow the path that leads from Aus meinem Leben, which, by the way, is the first of his nine autobiographies, Ecke Homo being the last. In so doing, we'll see the evolution of Nietzsche's God, and thus the evolution of his relation to that God. We'll also see just how faithful Nietzsche turns out to be. What was the faith of the young Fritz, known for his impassioned recitation of pious songs in scripture, and thus called the little pastor? We get a vivid picture of that faith in the following prayer. I gave you a, a brief amount from that, and now I'm going to quote it in full. This is from Aus meinem Leben in 1858. Just keep in mind that Nietzsche was born in 1844. I have firmly resolved within me to dedicate myself forever to his service. May the dear Lord give me strength and power to carry out my intention and protect me on life's way. Like a child, I trust in his grace. He will preserve us all that no misfortune may befall us. But his holding will be done. All he gives I will joyfully accept. Happiness and unhappiness, poverty and wealth, and boldly look even death in the face which shall one day unite us all in eternal joy and bliss. Yes, dear Lord, let thy face shine upon us forever. 
Although the depth of religious zeal in this prayer may seem strange when juxtaposed to Nietzsche's later writings, I think it shouldn't surprise us at all. None of the elements of this prayer are unusual. They are typical of the German pietism of Nietzsche's upbringing. Further, given Nietzsche's later vehemence against Christianity, one would almost expect that level of criticism to be matched by a previous level of devotion. What we find in this prayer is first an outpouring of the heart, one more interested in Christian practice than any set of beliefs. Second, it's a prayer of bold resolution. There's no room for inconstancy here. Third, that resolve is nevertheless tempered by an admission of inability. Only by the strength of another can that resolution be carried out. Fourth, with an openly proclaimed and even celebrated childlike trust, Nietzsche is convinced that God will provide. Fifth, even if God brings what seems like misfortune, Nietzsche still affirms that it's God's will. Whatever happens, Nietzsche is content to joyfully accept it, to say yes and amen to all that comes. Sixth, although God is not specifically identified, Nietzsche clearly has no questions regarding who he is. Yet these elements are put in question in a poem written only three years later, in 1860, and flown die hulden trauma, fled are the lovely dreams. It too is an outpouring of the heart, but this heart is disillusioned, uncertain, and full of tears. What exactly has fled becomes clear when Nietzsche says, I do not know what I love. I have neither peace nor rest. I do not know what I believe. Or why I'm still living. For what? Finally, the poem ends with three incomplete stanzas. One senses Nietzsche struggling for words, unable to follow even the basic form of the poem. Man is not a worthy image of God. From day to day more distorted, and the next line is left simply blank. I form God according to my rudimentary character. I awoke from heavy dreams through a dull ringing. Nietzsche no longer affirms his earlier promise to serve God. He's unwavering just that God is good. His willingness to accept whatever God gives and his certainty of who God is. These become part of the lovely dream from which he has quite sadly awakened. Having realized that God, at least as earlier configured, does not exist, Nietzsche is now uncertain what to put in its place. One should read Nietzsche's claim that der Mensch is nicht der Gottheit, Verdes Ebenbild. Man is not a worthy image of God. In light of the claim, nach meinem Urcharakter gestalt ich mir auch Gott. I form God according to my rudimentary character. Nietzsche's picture of God has changed because he himself has changed, and thus he sees God differently. But this new picture of God is one that he's reluctant to accept. It is all too human, and so unworthy. That Nietzsche was struggling with how to conceive of God is evident from two slightly later poems. The first, Du hast gerufen, Herr ich komme. You've called, Lord, I come was written in 1862, and it seems to revert to Nietzsche's earlier conception of God. You are so gentle, faithful and sincere, genuinely earnest, 
dear Savior image for sinners. It's hard to imagine a more pietistic image of God. And it is to this God that Nietzsche says, You have called, Lord, I rush with circumspection to the steps of your throne, glowing with love. Your glance shines into my heart so dearly, so painfully. Lord, I come. Still, it would be too simple to assume that Nietzsche has simply reverted to pietism, for his prayer is clearly tempered by hesitation, fear, and growing uncertainty. Nietzsche presents us with a pietistic conception of God and promises to heed his call. But then he says, Herr, ich eile und weile. It is the religious double gesture. He hurries, but also holds back. Nietzsche seems to be unsure even in the midst of rushing back to God. Why is he so reluctant? Well, he first says he feels a shudder from the sin. He expands on this by describing it as the abyss of night, the Nachgründe. Is Nietzsche's problem simply remorse for sin? Is Nietzsche's problem simply remorse for sin? It's hard to think of sin as the abyss for Nietzsche now. Much more likely is that his sin is that of having peered into the abyss, the nothingness of unbelief. But can he really return to his earlier conception of God? Given both the earlier poem and the ambivalence expressed here, he seems to be well aware that this attempt may fail. So the prayer is a move of desperation, a desperation that will characterize all of Nietzsche's further attempts to deal with God, Christianity, and religion in general. As it turns out, Nietzsche's attempt does not succeed. By 1864, although Nietzsche has not completely given up on God's existence, he certainly sounds as if he's finally given up on his pietist conception of God. The second poem is titled To the Unknown God, Dem Unbekannten Gott, was written on the day of his graduation from Forte at age 19. That was his gymnasium. I lift up my hands to you in loneliness, you to whom I flee, to whom in the deepest depths of my heart I have solemnly consecrated altars so that your voice might summon me again. On them glows deeply inscribed the word, To the unknown God. I am his. I want to know you, unknown one. You have reached deep into my soul, into my life like the gust of a storm. You incomprehensible yet related one. I want to know you, even serve you. Nietzsche desperately wants to know this unknown one, the Unbekannte. Moreover, this is not the first time he has cried out at this Unbekannte. He says, noch einmal, once again. He's consecration of altars suggests an ongoing willingness to know God, for the inscription on them is deeply inscribed. Further, Nietzsche says, Sein bin ich, I am his, and once again expresses his desire to serve God. Ich will dich kennen, selbst dir dienen. I want to know you, even serve you. But he's no longer sure who this God is. It is, to be sure, the God who, tief in meiner Seele, greifender, ha, this is, has reached deep in my soul. 
But Nietzsche now identifies his God as the unbekannte, or the incomprehensible one. In short, an other whose identity has not been revealed and cannot be known. So he has not exactly left God behind, even if he has left a particular sort of God behind. But then who or what takes over the role of God for Nietzsche? And to whom or what does Nietzsche now pray? Nietzsche's contemporary Lou Salome points out that Nietzsche remains obsessed with God throughout his entire life. Here's what she says. Only when we encounter Nietzsche's last phase of philosophy will it become completely clear to what extent the religious drive always dominated his being and his knowledge. His various philosophies are, for him, just so many surrogates for God, which were intended to help him compensate for a mystical God ideal outside of himself. His last years, then, are a confession that he was not able to do without this ideal. And precisely because of that, time and again, we come upon his impassioned battle against religion, belief in God, and the need for salvation because he came precariously close to them. But it's not just that Nietzsche's philosophies function as surrogates for God. Nietzsche actually gives us at least two gods who are surrogates for the god to whom the young Fritz once prayed. They are Dionysus and life. Both are variations on the Unbekannte, and Nietzsche comes to use them almost interchangeably. Moreover, Nietzsche contrasts what he terms Dionysus and the crucified as two different religious types. Where's the follower of the crucified? The Christian denies life. The follower of Dionysus affirms life. Early on in the birth of tragedy, Nietzsche speaks of the mysterious primordial one, das geheimnisvolle Ureiner. Given the influence of Schopenhauer and Nietzsche at this point, 1871-1872, it is natural to equate the Ureiner with Schopenhauer's Villa, remarkably like the Unbekannte, unknown, unpredictable, and incomprehensible. But in his attempt at self-criticism of 1886, Nietzsche implies that Dionysus is this one. Note that Dionysus is a particularly good replacement for the Unbekannte. As the god of becoming, he is described as polymorphous and appearing in many ways. Yet not only is Dionysus himself able to take on multiple appearances, those whom he aspires are likewise enabled to become other in two ways. First, the actor in Greek tragedy, the Hupokrites, puts on masks, allowing him to take on different persona. Second, the rausch, the frenzy or rapture that one experiences when one is under the spell of Dionysus, brings about an ecstasy, one that removes one even if only temporarily beyond normal existence. The substitution, then, of Dionysus for the god of Christianity not only changes the identity of God for Nietzsche, but also enables Nietzsche to change his own identity. Increasingly, Nietzsche comes to speak of himself as Dionysus. Thus, Echo Homo concludes with the famous line, Dionysus versus the crucified. The ecstasis, or the ecstasy, that Nietzsche seeks is precisely that which would allow him to become what he terms a free spirit, a freier Geist. 
Of course, Nietzsche does not claim to be a free spirit. Not only does he say that free spirits of this kind do not exist, he also makes it clear that one becomes a free spirit. One may conjecture that a spirit in whom the type free spirit will one day become ripe and sweet to the point of perfection has had its decisive experience and a great liberation, and that previously it was all the more a fettered spirit and seemed to be chained forever to its pillar and corner. That's Nietzsche's assessment. Even their arrival does not signify, though, that they have truly arrived. Nietzsche characterizes free spirits as those who attempt. Uh, the word here is fasuka, not necessarily those who succeed. Indeed, he admits that we too are still pious, for, and this is again a quote from him, even we godless anti-metaphysicians still take our fire too from the flame lit by the thousand-year-old faith, the Christian faith. So Nietzsche is still a fasuka, an experimenter in this project of self-overcoming. Just how far, though, does Nietzsche get in his versuchung, particularly in terms of becoming a godless anti-metaphysician? Heidegger has famously questioned whether Nietzsche is truly an anti-metaphysician, accusing him of elevating will to power, becoming life and being, in the broadest sense, to metaphysical principles. But my charge here is that Nietzsche is not truly godless. For Nietzsche, life is the Unbekannte, who replaces God. Of course, even this move of replacing God with life proves difficult for Nietzsche. So one can level at least three charges against Nietzsche. He's not left metaphysics behind. His move from the God of Christianity to the Unbekannte, known as life, means that he has not left religion behind. And three, his attempt to replace God with life is at best only partially successful. We shall take up the second and third of these charges. Although there are different charges, if Nietzsche is guilty of either, then he's not truly godless. And as we shall see, Nietzsche still prays. But I need to stop here. Join us for the continuing story of Nietzsche's prayers and tears in the next two episodes. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Alice Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.